Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby, and today I'm joined by Dr. Christian Gelblinger. Dr. Gelblinger worked as a policy advisor and a political speechwriter in Australia before she undertook a second PhD on the reasons why policy advice is rejected or ignored, focusing in particular on the language used by advisors. Her first PhD, by the way, was on science and regeneration in Gothic science fiction. She's now a visiting fellow at the Australian National Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, which is part of the Australian National University, and she's also continued working in communications-related government roles. And she has a new book coming out in February this year called, rather intriguingly, How Government Experts Self-Sabotage. So, Christiane, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Toby. Great to be here. All right, so we'll get on to the stuff about how experts self-sabotage in just a moment. But I absolutely have to ask you first about science in gothic science fiction. This is uh, way outside my area, but I had a think, and off the top of my head, I had only really come up with Frankenstein as a kind of science-centered gothic novel. Am I on the right track here? You are totally on the right track. Um, the thesis was pretty much divided into three chapters, case studies, starting with Frankenstein as the sort of you know origin text, and then looked at James Whale's um, two Frankensteins from the 1930s, so Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, and then the third chapter was on Blade Runner, the, the 80s uh, version of Blade Runner, ah. um, which I was actually mortified in a way to realise, oh, I think I'll have to write about that because even at that point, and this is sort of, in, I guess, in the 90s, late 90s, I wrote this, you know, too much had already been written on, on uh, Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's in there as well, a uh, long time ago. Ah, yeah, because when I thought Gothic, I was thinking 18th and 19th centuries, but of course, that's too narrow. People are still writing Gothic stuff today. That, that's right. Yeah. So I was wondering, but then, yeah. Maybe when we talk about things like Blade Runner, it's a bit more nuanced. But I was thinking about Frankenstein and wondering then if science and scientists are ever like a force for good in gothic fiction. Or is it always uh, malign, like the mad scientist against the sensible worldly protagonist? Um, good question. I, th- I think mostly they are the bad guys. But what I found was uh, what had begun with Mary Shelley was this sort of scientist, you know, seeking progress, but actually that progress took you further back into the past. Um, and and I found the same thing with Blade Runner, you know, what, what is actually kind of achieved in that at the end is a kind of an Adam and Eve, you know, entering the new world. And so, again, you know, we're going into this sort of prelapsarian kind of existence uh, and in and, and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, I, I felt that, that was also sort of going, back, you know, going forward into the past kind of thing, um, especially the, the the monster being made from reanimated corpses. But not just that, also Victor Frankenstein's sort of, you know, ideals are very much kind of, I guess, pre-French Revolution at the time. So, and I found the same in in uh, James Whale's versions, and they're, they're real masterpieces, those two. Okay. Well, then let's switch tracks and talk about what we said we were going to talk about, which is this equally interesting and definitely more relevant topic of science advice being ignored and science advisors being ignorable by accident or by design. What's going on there? Well, I think, I think the way it's communicated uh, and articulated by the experts 
you know, I mean, they, they use their own language. This is nothing new and their own jargon. Um, but, but the way that, you know, hits their audience, if they even have an audience in mind, really, uh, well, I think it just kind of sinks and is is so easy to ignore because people don't understand it. I think I think experts seem to be more interested in talking to each other, and that that's understandable. You know, I mean, if you're publishing in a in a very obscure journal, then you probably are only talking to people just like like you. So uh, there's that. But what I found with my research is that. There are different ways of expressing expertise and and all of the ones I encountered, um, you know, were put in such a way as to almost sort of politely ask to be ignored, you know, because it might offend or it might be too complex or controversial. So, you know, basically here's my expertise and, you know, rebuff it if, if you wish. Um, you know, it's this sort of softly, softly approach of flying under the radar that... Um, you know, I mean, it's just so easy to reject and ignore something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, we talk a lot and I think it's well known that science communication, whether by scientists or advisors or others, can't just use the same language that's used when scientists talk to each other, as you say, when they write in journals or whatever. So like learning to adapt your language for your audience is uh, the, a skill that we know is important and that you definitely can learn. But for me, what's new and kind of a bit surprising in what you've written is this idea of self-sabotage, which is in the title of your book. Because to my mind, that has an air of like intentionality about it. You're saying advisors are not just failing to do whatever it is they're trying to do, communicate or whatever, but they're somehow consciously or even deliberately undermining their own efforts. Is that what you mean? Yes, I do. And it's important to um, clarify that the experts I talk about, well, I mean, the title, you know, government experts, self-sabotaging, um, so these are these are civil servants, you know, policy advisors in service to governments within public administrations, not necessarily independent, you know, scientists or. But these experts are in a really difficult position because they are in Australia and and in other public services around the world, particularly in Westminster systems. You're you're required to be responsive, but you're also required to be objective. So, you know, to me those are two things that are in real tension to each other um you know how do you be responsive but objective at the time at the same time if you are telling your government audience you know your your political audience something they don't want to hear um and then you know on top of that there are these restrictions around well i mean their legislative requirements to be neutral impartial and so on as well as this fear of what if this is um, FOI? You know, what if somebody puts in a, a freedom of information request, and then everything I've written down here is going to be public, and I might embarrass, um, you know, um, my political master? So it's very difficult to articulate your expertise in ways that are clear, um, straightforward, uh, accessible, uh, and, and all of those things uh, when you are telling them something that you think, you know, you worry, and you're generally risk averse as a civil servant anyway, you know, you worry that, that it's not going to land well at all. Um, and that maybe your job, you know, I mean, I found that in my research too, people who um, uh, were very unequivocal in their advice. Um, there were two in particular who within a week both had uh, left their jobs. Yeah, interesting. I guess I can also think of a couple of examples of that. Maybe they're even the same ones. I don't know. But it's good that you clarified we're talking here about 
essentially civil servants. So people whose profession is to give this advice to their to their bosses rather than like independent experts. There's something about the lack of independence that I think is relevant here. I mean, not just because it's your employer that's asking you for the advice and therefore it's your neck on the line, you know, if it goes wrong. But also because in my experience, there's a bit of a, a culture in civil services of deferring to the politician and doing as you're asked. And, you know, like rightly so, because they're elected and you're not. And the worst sin you can commit is to embarrass them or outshine them or like cause problems for your political masters. That's right. Yeah, that's absolutely a reality. But there are situations. So, for example, I one of my case studies was uh, this is 2016, I think going back to 2016, um, there was a power outage in all of South Australia. So an entire state was without power for days. And the advice that the federal government experts were passing on to the government completely um, ignored the reason for the outage, because at that point, politicians had already moved on and said, oh, it's because South Australia relies too much on wind power. And this was a conservative government at the time. They didn't want, you know, they wanted to be able to demonise renewable energy uh, whenever they could, uh, so as to do as little in relation to climate change as possible. You know, and the experts had heard that, had heeded that call, and so very, very carefully avoided any mention of what might have caused this outage, which in fact was something to do with the interconnector and the way, um, you know, the um, the hardware had been programmed. So it was human error, basically. There was just an overload of power. It had nothing to do with renewal, renewables, but the narrative had already moved on at that point. And so all of the written kind of briefings after that um, provided pretty much only status updates of what was going on on the ground, you know, in terms of repairs and this connector is now, you know, working and blah, 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 blah. So that sort of thing. So they were being objective, they were being responsive, you know, they were sort of upholding all the all the things they were required to do, but they were not actually providing any expertise at all. Or, you know, if the government was keen on uh, slowing down on renewables, well, what does that mean then, therefore? You know, what does that mean in terms of Australia's obligations on climate change internationally? Uh, you know, what does it mean for our um, for baseload power? You know, so policy questions were just absolutely ignored uh, because, you know, his master's voice, I guess, um, had already played the tune of climate denial, I guess, really at its most basic. So um, public policy advisors, experts, were not really doing their jobs in that instance. Um, so the language that they used um, was, was easy to ignore because it said nothing. Mm, well, so that's the case not so much of the experts like failing in their attempts to communicate and, and also not being like vague or misleading, but just really avoiding challenging the current political narrative. They just weren't saying what the new politicians didn't want to hear. But, but, but then, of course, in a way that was kind of easy because, as you say, the narrative had moved on. So they simply weren't being asked those questions and so they didn't have to answer them. Uh, they were just answering only the questions that they were asked. No, that's right. But, you know, in a way, I feel that scientists and economists kind of wrote the playbook a little bit on this too. You know, the, the language of climate change science, the, the high likelihood, the, you know, the when they when they nuance something so much that even another expert may not necessarily know what, what they're saying. So I think I think almost every sphere of expertise will have its own um, sort of typologies of, of communicating in, in that easily ignorable way. 
Okay, so the nuance question is a really interesting one, I think, because when science advisors and scientists talk about the challenges they face, and I think in general, scientists are quite aware of the risk of being overlooked and ignored, you know, at least involuntarily. But when a science advisor talks about the challenges of their job, they often talk about reconciling the need to be heard and taken notice of with the competing need for nuance. So it's not like they're trying to hide behind nuance or use it to kind of neuter what they're saying. It's more that they're struggling to like <laughs> impute the due amount of nuance into a conversation that would otherwise be too black and white and simplistic and, and, and yet still have an impact in the world of politics because the evidence, like the actual science, is complex and nuanced and all that stuff. So it's a, a balancing act, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. It is a balancing act. It's not easy. It's not easy at all. And not everybody's very good at it. Um, and I guess it's it's a way of ultimately, I suppose, what you're doing is trying to communicate certainty and uncertainty. So it's, it, it, it is hard, but at least with my government experts, what they're not good at doing is fronting up and saying, look, we're not actually completely certain about this, you know. Um, to, to, to be clear and certain about the uncertainty is something that doesn't happen in the sort of in the policy circles, I guess. You know, briefings are written very much with a, you know, there'll be an action at the end of this, or at least this is, if I'm giving something to a, to a, a government minister, then they just want information, they just want facts, you know. So I, I think they're still in that world of, oh, the facts speak for themselves. So when they present a briefing, their language is kind of heavy with with this assumption that these are the facts, even when they're not necessarily. Yeah. So, okay. So, so maybe I misunderstood you a minute ago, because I, I thought you were saying, you know, stop hiding behind nuance and just be clear and direct. And I was, I was saying, in my experience, it's less about hiding behind nuance and more about trying to balance it against the need to be direct. But then I think I missed your point. Sorry. So... Let me have another go at it. So you're an expert and you're faced with uncertainties in the evidence base, but you need to say something to a policymaker about it because that's your job. So the good approach, I think you're saying, is to try and clearly and accurately express the uncertainties, the nuance, the complexities for the policymaker. And the less good response is instead to try and find something straightforward that you can say which is easier for the politician to swallow without like actually contradicting the evidence but that then ends up being so high level and vague or ambiguous that it's not actually any help and it, that then leads to this inherent ignorability that we're talking about well that's right and that's the world you're, you're moving in as well you know in like a week's a long time in politics um so you know th there is no time for you know the luxury i guess of delving into the complexity you know, things need to be resolved usually as soon as possible. You know, mostly it's it's filled with urgency, and so you you know you can't you can't grapple with the uncertainty. There's just no time. And I mean, or when you're proposing you know a solution for a policy problem, but if if it takes longer than you know six months, um, then forget about it. So it's, you know that that is the world, and you know so solutions are usually pretty patchwork kind of band-aid um, and you know because all that's required is an announceable um, you know like a success story and then we're on to the next thing so you know in that world there is there is no time for coming to terms with uncertainty and complexity yeah gotcha 
You use the phrase, the strategy of impersonality. What do you mean? So that's actually, that's something I stole. <laughs> well, um, with reference, of course, um, from Theodore Porter. <laughs> uh, his book, Trust in Numbers, is fantastic. Um, and he coins that phrase, the strategy of impersonality. Um, it's a way of experts kind of removing themselves from what's being communicated so they can't really be held accountable. Sort of, it's, it's a way of immunising themselves. Um, and I've just got this written down here. So Theodore Porter said that the strategies of impersonality must be understood partly as defences against suspicions of being biased or arbitrary and generally take the form of objectivity claims. Objectivity means knowledge does not depend too much on the particular individuals who author it. So objectivity is kind of a screen, you know, for hiding behind. Um, if you sound objective, like an objective expert, then, you know, it's not your fault. <laughs> like, it is a thing. Okay, but objectivity in itself is supposed to be a good thing, right? Or at least aiming for it, especially in science advice. You know, don't bring your own priorities, don't import your own biases and, and beliefs, just try to be objective. So what's going wrong here then? So you're right. I mean, objectivity gives us all a starting point, you know, something on which we can more or less agree. But I think in policy circles, at the very least, um, it's kind of grown into, it's got too much uh, importance and influence. Um, so much so that, you know, people no longer think about, or maybe they never did, about the fact that, well, it's not entirely objective because I'm writing it. I'm bringing my own subjectivity, um, finding importance in various um, policy problems. Um, Do you have a, like a concrete example of this? Yes. So this was um, another, another example from 2016 um, where Australia was heading into an election year, oh, into an election cycle, uh, and one of the policies that was being uh, raised by the Labor Party, who was then in opposition, uh, was uh, reforms to Australia's negative gearing policy. So negative gearing, I don't know if you use the same term uh, in Europe, uh, but it's basically a way of basically avoiding as much tax as possible on uh, investment property. So not your primary home, but investment. And Labor um, basically said, look, we need to urgently reform this. It's um, benefiting wealthy investors, but, you know, people who need to rent or, you know, or people who might just basically be able to scrape into the housing market are completely missing out here. But the um, ruling um, Conservative government called this, you know, the, the most destructive policy ever uh, announced by an opposition or something like that. Um, and so the advice that was coming out of Treasury to help the government kind of unpack Labor's proposal was just absolutely steadfastly refusing to acknowledge that there was a lot of political context around this um, policy. It, it, had, it has a 20-year kind of history of, well, probably 30 to 40 by now, but that, that uh, it, it had been kind of kicking around the corridors of Parliament House for, for a long time, since the 1980s. Um, so it become a kind of a political football um, so this particular policy had a lot of baggage around it, um, which really needed to be uh, acknowledged in the briefings from economic policy advisors, but they absolutely, absolutely ignored it um, and basically favoured this, this strategy of impersonality of, you know, like just, just presenting things as coldly and clinically 
uh, as possible, you know, using a lot of numbers, um, you know, with this shield of objectivity. And what ended up happening is that the government <clears throat> actually further entrenched the policy. Uh, so there was no room for discussion about it or, you know, minor reforms to it or, you know, any kind of change other than consolidating it. All right. Yeah. So let me try to give a, another perspective on that, because I can imagine maybe the perspective of a science advisor or civil servant listening to what you just said. I know a fair few people of that kind are in our audience. So they might be thinking, wait, of course that's what they did. Of course they just gave the objective numbers-based, fact-based information and then left it open for the policymaker to, to do what they want with that information, because that's like the role of science advice. It's to present evidence and then the political context, the values, judgments, the use that's made of it in politics is not on them, it's on the politician who's elected to fulfill that role. So are you saying that the outcome would have been better in this case if the economics advisors, as it was here, had communicated differently, had tried to get more into the context and the politics and so on, would the outcome have been better? They would have done their job better. And, th and this, is, this is kind of why I find this so untenable. Um, it's fine to communicate like that, but you are, you are serving the public through the government of the day, sure, but you are serving the public, you're working in the public interest. If your written briefings are so flat that they say nothing, oh, and importantly, I should point out that with these particular briefings, the government was able to say, oh, well, I didn't, I didn't agree with what Treasury was saying. And then several months later, they said, oh, well, what Treasury's been saying is what we've been saying all along. You know, so they, they used the briefing to say two opposite things because they could because of the language being so, so flat, so under the radar, so, you know, studiously avoiding the context. So I think that they're not doing their jobs because we, where is the accountability? And, and where, is the, where is the ability for the public, anyone in the public, uh, to be able to go to the public record? You know, now that this has been FOI'd, um, it's out in the public domain, they read it and it means nothing to them. So how can you hold anyone to account when there is nothing for you to hold to account with. Yeah, understood. So again, it's this interesting tension between the obligation to give useful, accurate advice, which will actually make a difference, versus the pressure, cynically, I think, is how you're presenting it, right? The, the pressure to make anything you say compatible with anything your boss might in the end want to do. So really, the sweet spot is where you've written something that can mean anything the reader wants it to mean. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So as to be a good civil servant to allow your boss maximum room. Well, you've done your job. Yeah. You know, I mean, in inverted commas. Right. Exactly. But so, so then we face a dilemma, don't we? Because just to put it like in the starkest possible terms, assume we have an advisor who really wants to make an impact and do their job the best they can. If they fail to fit the policymakers' needs, if they follow their own agenda or deviate from the political imperatives, then they will have no impact because they'll be ignored. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then on the other hand, if they try to present what the politician wants to hear, if they're blown too much by the political winds and just give the, the politician whatever they want, then they will have no impact because the boss will just use what they say to go ahead and do what they wanted to do anyway. What a depressing dilemma. Well, I mean, I don't think it's as clear-cut as an either-or. 
I mean, I, I fully, fully acknowledge the, the problems and the tensions there. I mean, either way, if you lean in too much, your your advice is is compromised. Um, you know, you've either gone too far towards being responsive, as you say, or or because you're too concerned about your own views. Um, it looks like you have your own agenda, which is, you know, I mean, especially for science advice, you, you don't want that. Um, you need to be open if you have got an agenda, you need to be open about that. I mean, there are there are ways of merging the two. So, for instance, um, there's this kind of working with the grain, and I can't remember now the names of the authors that coined this, but where you you know what the realities of politics are, and you you work with that, yeah, and you and you provide what those specific requirements demand coming with your with your specific expertise for those specific requirements. All right, then what's your advice for doing that? What's what are you supposed to do to tread that line? Well, I mean, you need to be clear, and that's really hard. I re- I've read I I don't even know countless of briefs that are far too long and really only say something kind of important at the very end. You know, those are briefings where the expert has kind of talked themselves through the problem and arrived at something at the end. That's obviously not not acceptable. So the clarity, um, you you basically want to see the the, the tip of the iceberg, not the entire iceberg, and I've seen far too many icebergs. Um, But also you need to read a lot. I think a lot of policy advisors don't read a lot of literature. So if you don't, if you don't appreciate other writers, then you probably don't have a great sense of what good writing should really be. And so that kind of boils down to rhetoric as well. Just to understand the flow, you know, what needs to be in your first sentence? What's your opener? What's the context? Why are you answering this question? Why is it a question? You know, those are all really, that's basically good manners for your audience and for your readers to to know, you know, what's coming next. So that's an interesting way of putting it. So yeah, because, so rhetoric is often perceived as, so you'll sometimes meet a scientist who says, look, my role is not to persuade or manipulate, it's only to inform. So I'm deliberately avoiding any kind of, any hint of the dark art of rhetoric, as they say. I'm not getting into that. I'm just presenting straight up information. But then framing it as being just polite to your audience, having the courtesy to make what you're saying coherent and make sense, that's a super interesting way of reframing it. But but also to make it, you know, interesting. Otherwise, it's just boring. Like, I don't want to read it. You know, you don't need to be like Tom Clancy or something, like, you know, grab you by the throat kind of thriller or something. But it needs to, I mean, why should I read it? Why should I be interested in your stuff? Mm-hmm. Just to wrap up, please give us a, a, a ray of sunshine. Have you found advisors who are effective in the ways you've described? I, I, I want to believe that, Toby. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there are, but the only ones that were effective in my research were the ones that were telling the audience what they wanted to hear. <laughs> that's not a ray of sunshine but hey that is not you know that's not necessarily a bad thing um i mean in my examples it was a little bit nefarious because it was things like um you know the legal basis for invading iraq (laughs) and the the legal advisors knew that the government wanted to invade iraq so they gave them something very straightforward and that that was effective um but you can still take something from that you know well how was that how was it said 
you know, it was said simply, it was said clearly, it was said confidently, but you can still learn something even from advice that you don't agree with, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess effective advisors, um, they listen well, they listen really well. And they, and effective advisors, I, in my opinion, I think are people who love to hear from others to tell them about things they don't know. You know, so that, that, that sort of curiosity of finding other things fascinating, not just your own stuff. And I guess in my world, they would be courageous. I think there is not a lot of courage. Um, and that's a cultural thing. And it's sad because people come into this work being quite idealistic and feeling like I can, I can try and make a difference if I work in government. But I don't know if that always lasts. That Well, the, the idealism probably lasts, but, you know, they're, so, they're encultured really quickly uh, when they start in that job to, you know, and they're modelling behaviours that they see from superiors who give the ministers what they want and that's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So culture change, yeah? Uh-oh. Listen, uh, thank you very much indeed. If there are people in the audience who found this fascinating, as I'm sure there are many, do they now need to go and buy your book or have you told them everything they need to know? Oh, no, no, they need to read my book because um, I'm terrible at these things and I've <laughs> really just given the absolute surface. Um, I'm a much better writer than I am a speaker. So yes, please read the book. I'll put a link in the show notes. So it's February 2023 that people can read that book. That's right, yeah. Um, in fact, no, it's actually already available online and free through the ANU Press, Australian National University Press. Uh, even better, so no excuses. Well, then, Dr. Christiane Gablinger, thank you so much for a really fascinating and challenging conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Toby. The Science for Policy podcast is created by Sapea. It's produced by me, Toby Wardman, with additional research and support from Agnieszka Pietruchuk. Sapea is a consortium of Europe's academy networks representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learning societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism, and as such, we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions you hear on this podcast are those of the guests, and sometimes mine, but certainly not the views of the European Commission. This music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Suschenko. And this last bit is particularly good.